Hey everyone, I want to let you know that support for today's episode comes from AL.com, Alabama's number one media site, covering in-depth news, special interest stories, college football, and everything there is to love about living in Alabama, accessible via desktop and mobile apps. Check them out at AL.com. Welcome to the Ark Stories Podcast. So there I was, standing in front of a group of strangers attending a football game, being cursed out about Doritos. A minute or two later, Taylor Swift comes out and she like smiles that all-American Nashville smile and she, she introduces herself, she shakes my hand, hey I'm Taylor, hey I'm the groom. We are bringing you true personal stories from the heart of the South told in the Southern tradition. I caught just enough of the video to see a very large man making this slow walk toward a van, wearing absolutely nothing but his underwear and coated in grease. And I'm going to stop right there, and the rest of it is history. By now, for nearly everyone, summer is over and school is back in session. Some of us are still pursuing our studies, but for the rest of us, unless you have kids, this probably doesn't mean much for you. Still, the impact that school has had on each and every single one of us cannot be denied. So in honor of all we experienced during our years walking school hallways, whether hallowed or horrible, we are bringing you three. That's right. Three stories about lessons learned in the pursuit of education, though each of these are far from the results of any intended assignment. Our first story was originally told at an event we hosted for Father's Day last year in partnership with the Alabama Media Group. It's so good, though, we've had it told a couple of other times since then. And this particular recording comes from an event we hosted last summer where our theme was do-over, stories from the vault. Here's storyteller Kent Haynes. So when I was in elementary school, the biggest event of the year was always the fourth grade Alabama history pageant, where all the fourth graders would dress up like famous Alabamians and recite a paragraph about why they were important. And I remember the parents would spend all year sewing costumes and upgrading their camcorders and running lines with their children. And all the kids would spend all year arguing over who was going to play Jimmy Buffett. Uh, because. Everyone in my grade, boys and girls, wanted to play Fairhope, Alabama's favorite son. That is except for me, because I wanted to play my great-great-grandfather. So there's a saying in my family that's gone back a long way, which is uh, always remember who you are and what you represent. And I felt like I had a lot to represent. My great-great-grandfather, John Hollis Bankhead, was a US senator from Alabama. His father, John Sr., was also a U.S. Senator. His niece was Tallulah Bankhead, the famous Broadway and film star. And his brother was William Brockman Bankhead, who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Uh, In fact, when he died, uh, FDR came down from Washington, D.C. to Jasper, Alabama to attend his funeral. Uh, The church actually had to build a ramp to accommodate his wheelchair. So these people in my family were my personal Mount Rushmore. You know, I felt like I came from an important family, and I had an important legacy to live up to. Um, 
I wanted to play my great-great-grandfather because I knew on some level that I would be considered in comparison to him. Um, it's not something I talked a lot about. I'm not the type of person to brag about my family in front of a room full of strangers, but <laughs> <clears throat> it was always something that I kept with me. Uh, I kept it through high school and through college, and especially when I got my master's degree, which is where I really learned about my family. So I, I got a master's in education in Philadelphia. And so everybody in my program would be student teaching in Philadelphia public schools, um, which were predominantly populated by low-income black people and low-income Latino people. And my master's program was mostly populated by middle-income white people and high-income white people. So we knew that it was going to be a challenge. But I figured it was a challenge that I could handle. I mean, it's not the US Senate. It's a room full of 12-year-olds, you know? And like, I had never been a seventh grade teacher, but I had been a seventh grade student. And from what I could remember, all my teachers were idiots. So how hard could it be? But I was not, I was not prepared for this school at all. Um, there were fights in the halls all the time. There were so many fights that we couldn't even let the kids out in the halls on their own. We had to line them up, single file, eighth, seventh and eighth graders, and walk them to the lunchroom, and then walk them to the gym, and walk them to the bathroom two times a day. That's what you got. Nine in the morning, 1.30 in the afternoon. You got to go at 11? Should have thought of it earlier. Good luck waiting till 1.30. And because the kids were angry and fed up and being treated like little children and had to go to the bathroom, they decided to make my room as chaotic as the hallways outside of it. Um, and I was just so angry at these kids because I could not believe that they weren't even mature enough to behave themselves to get bathroom privileges in middle school. Like, how, how do you even get to that point? But the longer I was at that school and the more I learned about where these kids were coming from and the circumstances that they were growing up in, the more I understood why they would be acting out in school. I mean, I had kids who came to school hungry in dirty uniforms, you know, exhausted because they were up all night at the emergency room because their sister was running a fever and that's the only place in the city that gives them medical care. You know, I, I, I had one kid who it just seemed like one day he decided to make my life miserable. For two weeks, he didn't do any of his work. He was constantly disrupting my class, talking to other kids. He was throwing things around my room. I eventually, I just, I called his mom up out of frustration just to let her know how her son had been acting in my room. And she was very apologetic on the phone. She said, Mr. Haynes, I'm so sorry for the way he's been behaving. He just hasn't been able to get a good night's sleep ever since he found the body. He had been out behind the apartments where he lived with some friends, came upon a woman, no clothes, out in the yard. And this kid is 12 years old, and I'm mad at him because he won't pay attention in math class. You know, like my class is gonna change what he sees when he closes his eyes. I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to look poverty straight in the face. And my professors knew this. They knew that this was going to happen to me and a lot of people like me. So one of the first major projects that we did in my master's program was a cultural study, not of our students, but of ourselves. The idea being, if we spend a little bit more time thinking actively about our own culture and history, who we were and what we represented, 
then we might have an access point to start to understand where our students are coming from and foster a connection with them. And I was really excited about this because frankly, I just needed any kind of way in to connect with my students. And also selfishly, I was really excited that I was gonna get this chance to finally research my family and find out what they had accomplished. So I got this assignment, I'm very excited about it. I walk out of the classroom, go down to the computer lab in my building, and I do the simplest thing imaginable. I Google my great-great-grandfather's name. And on the first site that I clicked on, I learned a lot about him. I learned that before he was a US senator, he was a state senator in Alabama. And while he was in the Alabama legislature, the grandfather clause was deemed to be unconstitutional. And black people were in danger of being allowed to vote in our state. And so my great-great-grandfather wrote the legislation that disenfranchised black people in Alabama through a series of poll taxes and tests. Uh, if you've seen the movie Selma, the test that Oprah's character fails in the beginning of the movie was conceived by my great-great-grandfather. And the people who were beaten on Edmund Pettus Bridge were marching to Montgomery to protest his law. So, I don't know if that's really surprising to a lot of you guys. Uh, spoiler alert, a prominent politician from Alabama was racist. Um, but to me, it was devastating. I mean, I remember just sitting in the computer lab just stunned because I realized in that moment that I had a child's understanding of my family. You know, I knew that they were important, like all the guys whose faces are on the money, but I could tell you as much about my own family as the average 10-year-old could tell you about Andrew Jackson, you know? And it, and it wasn't just my family that I had a child's understanding of. I had a child's understanding of Alabama history. Like, yes, I knew Alabama had a dark past, but I never connected that to any decisions that anyone had actually made. I just thought about it like, oh, things were bad back then and now they're better. But things weren't just bad back then by happenstance. Like, we did not oppress black people by accident. That happened due to a series of decisions made by people like my great-great-grandfather. You know, people who didn't want black folks to vote and made sure that they couldn't. Didn't want black people moving into their neighborhood and made sure they could only live in high-poverty ghettos. People who didn't want black folks to get an education and so they made their schools terrible and underfunded and would never give those children a chance at an equal life. And as I'm having this realization, I am still going into this school in Philadelphia every day. I'm driving from the part of Philly where the white folks live to the part of Philly where the other folks live. And I'm walking into this dilapidated building thinking, if my great-great-grandfather could see this place, he would be so happy. And I didn't know what to do with that. I mean, I'd like to tell you that this realization rejuvenated my classroom and I took control of it and all my students grew to love and respect me and I prepared them all for high school and college and beyond. We like hearing those stories. Those movies do very, very well. But that is not how change happens in the real world. And that's not even why I'm telling this story. I'm telling this story because this week we celebrated Father's Day. And eventually, everyone has to come to terms with the fact that their dad 
or their granddad or their great-great-granddad is not the cartoon superhero that you imagined him to be. You know, for some kids that happens really, really early. And for other people it takes a long time, but there is always a reckoning. And so now I know. I know who I am and what I really represent. And I'm still inspired by my great-great-grandfather's legacy, but it is no longer a legacy that I want to live up to. It's a legacy that I want to dismantle and hopefully to redeem. My great-great-grandfather's law is gone now, thanks to the work of thousands of men and women. But there are still many laws on the books in this state that disproportionately are used to harm our black brothers and sisters. And those laws need to go as well. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. I don't know if I can repair the damage that my family has done to the people of Alabama. But I know I'm going to keep trying. Because I'm a father myself now. And right now, my kids think that I am awesome. But someday, they are going to learn that I'm just a person. And someday, they're going to learn just what kind of a person I am. Thank you. Kent Haynes is a middle school math teacher and sometimes stand-up comedian. You can find him on Twitter at Mr. A.K. Haynes. Now, our next storyteller also desires to change the world through her teaching, except she actually travels halfway around the world to try to do it. We'll have her story in just a moment after the break. all love stories. And if you're anything like me, then the stories you love the most are the ones that do much more than simply entertain you. They move you or inspire you or help you make sense of the world around you. And that's why I am so thankful for AL.com. They are so much more than a news site and always go well beyond a just the facts approach to the news of the day. Like us, the good people at AL.com are storytellers who help connect me to everything that's going on in my community, in my state, and even to what's going on around the world. Plus, as Alabama's number one media site, AL.com is the perfect platform to help you tell the story of your product or business. So engage with them today. They've made it so easy, their site is right there in their name. Simply visit AL.com. Now, while Kent learned a lot about his own family and their history, our next storyteller actually learns a lot about herself. And that is saying something, since she's actually the one who is supposed to be teaching the lessons. This story is from an event we hosted last year where our theme was Back to School Stories from Around the Classroom. Here's storyteller Christy Connolly. spent a good part of my life justifying what I do. So what is it you're majoring in, honey? Theater, I'd say. I could feel the defenses starting to come up because every time was the same. Their eyes would kind of glaze over in this pitying stare. They'd look at me like they were seeing this rough artist journey that I had ahead. So I started qualifying 
Well, I'm, I'm studying theater, but I'm also in the honors program. Um, I'm in service learning, and I'm taking calculus too. <laughs> Please be okay with my career choice. <laughs> I just felt like nobody ever took me seriously. But you know, I take theater very seriously. It's my art. It's what brings me joy. It's what brings me life. It teaches me to be present, to authentically connect with other people, and it forces me to take risks. So to me, theater is a very serious thing. But in a world that didn't quite seem to agree with me, I decided to put theater to the test. So for my senior theater research project, I convinced my theater professor that I would go to Ghana in Western Africa to teach English as a second language using theater. And let me just tell you, it took a lot of convincing, a lot of jumping through hoops to convince everyone involved that I was able to go. But the next thing I knew, I had a piece of chalk in my hand and I was writing the word theater on the board. And I turned around and I was in an open air classroom full of 15 to 28th grade students sitting on a dirt floor in their little rickety desks. And they just looked at me. They had no idea what the subject was. They had no idea what theater was. So I pulled out one of my favorite exercises to try to illustrate some of the values of theater. I picked up a book off of someone's desk and I said, I want that book. I said, repeat, repeat. They said, I want that book. No, you don't. I said, I don't believe you. You don't want this book. And they kind of giggled and looked around. And so I said, repeat. And they had a little bit more expression. And I asked, do you understand want, the word want? And I pulled my hand away from my chest like this to signify desire, wanting something. And I got a little bit of a better response. So I chose two of the boys who were very expressive and I had them come to the center of the classroom and I had them battle it out. So Michael would say, I want that book. And then Salorm would say, I want that book. Now at first glance, this might seem just like a silly exercise, like a silly game I'm doing, but trained actors use this technique because it forces you to engage. It forces you to drop into that present moment and use an honest intention. So here we go, Michael's saying, I want that book. And so Lorm says, I want that book. And Michael says, I want that book. And they're back and forth seeing who's going to win the book. And I'm moving the book towards Michael when he's winning, towards Salorm when he's being more convincing. And the entire room was full of this magnetic energy. Even Agnes, who came into school every day, just didn't want to talk. She was laughing and she was lit up. And then this side of the room started saying, we want that book. And then this side of the room said, we want that book. And it was back and forth and back and forth. And this emotional energy of connection was just vibrating through the classroom. It was really powerful. Because it wasn't really about that book. It was that want, that universal desire that everybody, Ghanaian, American, anything, we all connect with that. We all want something. So from that day on, my relationships with the students really started to take off, and they started to get a little bold with me, I guess giving me a taste of my own medicine. Uh, one of the seventh grade boys came up to me during lunch, and he put his thumb on my chin, and he said, quality. 
I kind of looked at him funny, and I ran over to uh, one of my favorite students who I bonded with instantly. Her name was Diana. She was a seventh grader. She was moody as hell. She hated the rules. She was super rough and confident, um, but she had this laugh and this smile that just lit up her entire face. And I said, Diana, what does this mean? And I put my thumb on her chin, and she just looked at me, and she said, quality. And I mean, I could tell just by the sound of her voice and the glow on her face what she meant. Beauty. Value. And I was kind of stunned in that moment, so she gave me an example to clarify. She said, quality to me, not quality to herself. So I took my thumb and I looked deep into her eyes now that I knew what I was saying to her. And I said, quality. And after that, I realized that's what really what we all want. That's our book. We all want somebody to be fully present with us and look us in the eye and say, you are important. You are valuable. So, I put together a scene, of course, I'm a theater teacher, about quality, about value. So my eighth graders, this was the hardest thing we did all month because the language barrier really started to get into play and rehearsing is tedious, but we put together this scene based on a song that the music teacher was teaching called Draw the Circle Wide. Include everybody, everyone is valuable. So one of the final performance, or the final rehearsals, um, my professors were like, hey, we wanna see what you guys are doing. I'm like, all right, great, yeah, come watch. Nervous. Um, so I'm watching, I'm just sitting back, really hoping they do a great job. I had one of the most expressive boys um, be the main character. And so he stood in the middle, and he would try to join this group of soccer, uh, soccer players, and they would exclude him. And then he would go and he would try to play with these dancers, and they had, they love this tribal dance that they did, I looked ridiculous, but they would exclude him too. And then he went and he played with some, some boys and they started beating him up and he ends up on the ground. And then a girl walks by and picks him up, dusts him off, and goes to those groups and says, no, draw the circle wide, include everyone. And then they got in a circle and they all sang that song, draw the circle wide. And I mean, I was so proud of them. They were bold. They were listening to each other. They were authentically connecting and really being present. And I looked back at my professors to see what they thought, and one of them was crying. And she just said, this is beautiful. This is absolutely beautiful. She had experienced quality. And I'll tell you, sometimes when you experience quality, it will bring you to tears. <laughs> like that last day that I was there, Trying to say goodbye to Diana was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I kept trying to give her some nice parting words. You know, the bus is about to leave, and the last thing I remember is her back. She did not want to talk to me. She didn't even look at me. She just cried. And my professors actually had to come and physically drag me to the bus because I didn't want to leave. And I just sat in the back of that bus, crying, didn't care what anybody else thought. I got out my journal, and I was just like, why did we do this? I mean, why did we even come here, huh? These white kids come in for three weeks and build these deep relationships with these kids, and then we just leave? 
I mean, that seems pretty cruel. <laughs> but I finally realized the reason that it was so tough for me to leave is because we had engaged. We had connected. We had taken risks. All of these things. We had truly lived. We had experienced the gift of quality. And that's what theater does. Thank you. Christy Connolly is a graduate teaching assistant at Texas Tech's School of Theater and Dance. Find her on Twitter at Christy underscore LC. So if you're enjoying today's stories, we would love to have you join us for more at our next live event. It's coming up in just a few weeks on Saturday, September 17th at the Avon Theater in Birmingham, Alabama. Our theme will be Go Fight Win, stories about sports. You can get all the details and your tickets at our website, arcstories.com. Now, a lot of our deepest relationships are formed while we're in school. It's often there that we make friends for life, and some of us even meet our future spouse, or perhaps spouses. What we don't expect, though, is to actually discover a family. But that's precisely what happens in this next story. It's from an event we hosted around this time last year with the theme of back-to-school stories from around the classroom. Here's storyteller Trinity Williams. On February 25th, 2015, my mother passed away due to heart failure. She sort of tried to prepare my brother and I for it, but there's no really possible way that you can prepare for something like that to happen when you lose someone so close to you. I love my mother so much, and she really supported me in everything I do. Like, I play softball, and we play in the early spring, and she came out to the game one night with her blanket, sitting in the cold, and it was freezing outside. I know everybody was cold, and she was out there supporting us, and when she got too cold, she went and she sat in the car with the heat on, of course, but she was still there supporting us, so I knew that she was there, so that really helped me. And at my school where I go, you don't really see a lot of that within the school because the parents don't think they have to support once we really get to high school. They think we're old enough to hold our own. So to have her there supporting us and supporting my teammates, that really encouraged us and showed us that somebody really did care. And my mom also taught me that you should help other people. like. There's this lady that she would go and pick up and get to clean up our house, even though my brother and I were very willing and able to clean up. <laughs> but <laughs> she would get the lady and she would let her clean up our house and she would pay her for it because she did need help helping out her family. And she had this little granddaughter who was about two or three at the time. And she would take her and pick her up and we would take her and play with her. And my mom would get her clothes and whatever she needed and just send it back home with her because she just helped other people. Well, the day my mom passed, 
We were all at the hospital and they told us that there really was nothing else that they could do. So I kind of knew that my brother and I were gonna go stay with my grandmother. And that kind of, it was, it was okay with me, but I knew it was gonna be a big change going from staying with my mom to staying with my grandma. But in the black community, when people pass away, people come. <laughs> well, when the people come, the people bring food. So they would come and they would bring food. And they would come and they would bring more food. And people kept coming and coming and food kept coming and the upstairs refrigerator was full of food and the downstairs refrigerator was full of food. And I was just tired of food and people and talking and eating and all that all together. So one day the doorbell rang and I ran to answer the door because I love people like I always do. And my teachers were there. Well, I was tired of being sad, so, cause I'm a happy person, and my mom was a happy person too, so when my teachers came, that made me happy. Cause you don't really expect to see people from your school come to your house. You would expect your church members, and you'd expect your family friends, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, but not your teachers. Who would expect their teachers to come to their house? So my teachers are there, I let them in, they came in, they sat down, we talked, and it made me really happy. And it changed my outlook of school because it showed me that school wasn't really a place where you just go to do your homework and turn it in, or you go to do your classwork and turn it in, and you go to practice, and you work hard, and you're just tired and you go home. School was actually a place where people cared about you, and it was a community that people actually showed that they loved you. So the next couple of days, the funeral came, and once again, I walk into the church, and I see so many people from my school. My softball team was there, my brother's baseball team was there, my principal, my teachers, and it just showed me that school isn't just school. So at the funeral, we see everybody, we get there, we see them. After there, everybody comes, they says, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I was like, it's okay, it's okay. And we were hugging and stuff. And the next couple of days, I was ready to go back to school because I was tired of sitting at home, just sitting up with them because my brother get on my nerves. So <laughs> I was ready to go back to school. So. But nobody really thought I was ready to go back to school, but I kept telling them I was ready. So finally, they let me go back to school. And I get to school, and I know I'm walking into the lion's den of, I'm sorry for what happened, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. And I was like, yeah, I know. So I get there to school, and I get a text from my friend that morning. He was like, if you need anything, I'm there. Just text me, I'm coming running. So I get to school, I walk in, I see my teacher, my favorite teacher, she gives me a hug. I was like, yeah, it's okay. So I get to school, go to class, all that good stuff. And like, just to know that I had people that were willing to come when I was ready, when I needed something was okay because I wasn't at home with my family and I needed people there for me. So I'm at school and in class, I come to class the next day and my classmate would not let me in class to save my life. He would not let me in the classroom. 
So finally, they let me in the classroom, and I walk in, and they're just like, hey, Trinity. I was like, hey. And they're like, I'm sorry. I was like, I know. And they give me this big card, and everybody in class wrote something in it. It's like, I'm sorry for your loss. Keep your head up. Stay strong. But one thing that one of my classmates wrote that I will never forget, it says, God gives the strongest fights to the strongest, the hardest fights to the strongest soldiers. Keep your head up. I was like, that's what I need. So it really just basically showed me that school isn't school. And my mom, she taught me so much, and I loved her, and I miss my mom so much. But just to know that even at school, I have people to care about me, that it really helps. And just to look back, I really think everybody should cherish the moments that you have with people because you don't really know how long you'll have them. And I think everybody should just take a look and see the relationships that you have and check and see how much they mean to you because you never know how long they'll be there. Thanks. Trinity Williams is now a high school graduate and current college student. She was the first teenager we'd ever had tell at an Art Stories event, and she was amazing. We wish her all the best in her current studies. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Art Stories podcast. I'm Chris Kinsley, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley. Art Stories is at all those places, too, at Art Stories. This podcast is produced by me and Art Stories director Taylor Robinson. Preston Lovingood composed our theme, and our ad music is from Ben Beanie. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Aaron Moon, Betsy Lee, Nate Dreger, and Jake Brentley for making this episode possible. We would love it if you subscribe to this podcast and let us and others know what you think. The best way to do that is to leave us a review on iTunes. I personally read every single one of them. So along those lines, I want to say a big thank you to C. Ross 322 AP Carmichael, Pa 11 and DK23 for your recent reviews. AP Carmichael, we made some changes, and hopefully this episode was a little easier for you to download. You can also visit our website, arcstories.com. There you can listen to other stories. You can stay up to date with all of our events and everything else we have going on. And you can even submit your own story to tell. After all, we are always asking, what's your story?